Hi, and welcome back to Adaptation Inspiration, a climate change podcast series where we gently pick the brains of climate change adaptation experts from across the globe. My name is Antonia Paquin, and I work with the Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, and I'll be your host for this podcast. In this episode, Robin and the team from the lab meet with Per Espen Stoknes, who is a Norwegian psychologist and economist. He works as a professor and as the director for the Center for Green Growth at the Norwegian Business School in Oslo, Norway. His latest book is titled, What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Oslo, and he has also served as a deputy representative in the Norwegian parliament. You can also tune in to his TED Talk, How to Turn Apocalypse Fatigue into Action on Global Warming. And here is our interview with Per. But of course, this weird science word pair of mitigation versus adaptation, and most people fall off in the middle of the word mitigation. <laughs> I would like maybe to substitute those words with um, safety yeah. and uh, well-being. Um, there is quite a bit of social psychology research on framing. Framing is something that journalists learn a little bit about when they do their education, and some communication professionals have learned about framing. Um, very few people get enough training or become sufficiently conscious as to about noticing what frames they're actually using and what framing does to the human mind and to the context within which it's happening. One of the most famous and most proficient researchers within the framing area is George Lakoff. Um, he started out doing a test with this audiences. You'll never forget it. I'll change your mind forever. It goes like this. I'll do an experiment with you, okay? One, two, three, here we go. It doesn't hurt, but you have to follow here. Do not think of an elephant. No, don't think of an elephant. <laughs> yes. So how does the mind react to that? And the mind immediately reacts by thinking of an elephant, even before you can consciously stop it. Mm -hmm. And then you have to shut it down. You have to spend energy. The point is that all conversations are framed by some images. And even those that then try not to think of an elephant um, are still framed by that instruction. So another political famous example was that, that George Lakoff often uses is that um, when, when Richard Nixon um, was confronted with his Watergate stuff, uh, he, he said, uh, I'm not a crook. <laughs> and of course, people thought, heard crook. And okay. uh, so that's what sticks. And the same thing applies to climate change communications. If you are in the business of trying to engage citizens and decision makers, you must be aware of how you frame what you're trying to achieve. Then the three dominant frames that have been used up to now in climate communications, and this is based on research, for instance, from the Oxford Institute for Journalism. They found that a lot of climate communications start from a disaster point of view. We're heading towards the cliff, uh, it's a catastrophe coming, it's a disaster, uh, and we have to stop and cut. So that is a frame within which a lot of the thinking is happening. But that frame has psychological costs, 
uh, it generates feelings of fear, guilt, resistance, and maybe avoidance. I'll speak a little bit about that tomorrow. Also, there's another frame which is particularly pushed by economists and politicians, which is that dealing with climate change is costly. So if you have done some calculations and find that it's less costly to adapt and find smart solutions than to continue as we are, you have to say, no, it's not costly. And what does the brain hear? Costly. And the discussion remains within that frame of, of cost in the here and now. And we also know, for instance, from psychological research from Daniel Kahneman, that people are loss averse. So we more than double hate losses now compared to gains uh, in the future. And thirdly, environmentalists and idealists have been very fond of taking the moral high ground and are often perceived as arrogantly pushing what people would perceive as a sacrifice. We have to stop eating meat, we have to cut driving your car and that plane ride isn't, you should, in the name of Mother Earth or whatever, you should stop doing what you're doing and you're doing harm. So sacrifice, cost and catastrophe. With frames like these, who needs, who needs enemies? <laughs> so a lot of climate change communications have been achieving the opposite of what you want, which is to create engagement and people think a little bit more further along into the future. So psychological research then has come up with main three frames that seem to generate more engagement and are not seen as creating this kind of backlash that we get from catastrophe, cost and sacrifice. And those three frames are health, it is risk management, like insurance, because not all everybody understands risk management, but insurance everybody understands. You have uh, insurance on your house. And the third is uh, opportunities for mm. better lives, uh, better, smarter lives, more jobs, cleaner air, etc. What I've been advocating within the climate communication space, and that I qu applies equally to both mitigation and adaptation, is to use uh, health arguments more, speak about this as a health issue, and it is. I mean, the world-leading medicine, medical researchers, such as those in around the Journal of Lancet at the Oxford University, they say this climate is the biggest health uh, challenge in this century. And second, uh, if you're in a business community and trying to speak with decision makers, makes more and more sense to speak about in the language of insurance because the insurance industry are the most progressive in this area and use their lingo um, and also you probably know the task force for climate related disclosures well the thing is um, a lot of our current investments and assets will be worthless uh, as we go deeper into this century because they're either based on fossil fuels or they rely on fossils and as more and more fossil assets are, and infrastructure are stranded, meaning that we can't use them anymore, it will incur a huge loss. So it will create financial instability. Maybe the next great recession is uh, from uh, the change, both driven by technological change, market change, consumer behavior change, but also regulatory change, so that um, you, if you continue basing your operations and your portfolio on fossil fuel energy, 
um, at some point you will see rapid uh, decline of value. So you should insure yourself, you should prepare to manage that risk in a good way. So you're robust and solid as you go into the future. Speaking this language is very different from threatening people with a catastrophe if they don't behave properly. By the way, we are Christians, everybody, in our Western English language, and we've, for 2,000 years we've heard that if you go on sinning, you will end up in hell. And now climate scientists are going to say, if you continue to emit, you will all burn in hell, or we'll burn the earth, or whatever. It's a very similar mm -hmm. structure. So we need to be very aware of the, the, the deep cultural framings that surround our, our speech. And finally, opportunities, and opportunities abound, and I think we speak too little of them, uh, partly because co media loves um, conflicts and uh, things that are threatening and scary, and it's, they don't really like to speak about the heroes, the heroines. Sometimes they do, but then they have to be put in some kind of dramat dramatic uh, action that they're out. Trump versus Greta Freeman. Yeah, for instance, exactly. You need that. You need that uh, villain in there. So I've been trying to lift up more stories of those who provide more value added, more um, jobs with uh, much less footprint uh, and, and, and all the co-benefits of cleaner air, better health, um, more employee loyalty, well-being by pursuing sustainable business models all over the place. So the idea is that if we could have three times as many framings that play on health, insurance, and opportunities for better lives, and they would outnumber the catastrophe, the cost, and the sacrifice in thermal communication, then psychology predicts that it will create a more long-lasting engagement. Uh, we've seen studies that confirm that in fields and in labs and in, in kind of type of experimental setups. Um, and um, my perception is to that uh, it, it works out much better. For, I could mention, for instance, the city of Oslo. The department in the city, they are no longer speaking about resilience. Sorry, they're not speaking about um, at cutting emissions or uh, mitigation or adaptation. No, they're speaking about we are upgrading Oslo. So we're just making an upgrade to our entire so it's, in the, it's in, the, in the name of moving towards higher quality of life. Are there other strategies that you think we need to be grappling with and, and trying to get the large mass of society engaged with this as an idea to, and, and participating? Yeah, so the framings issue kind of covers the, the story, or no, sorry, the, 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 the communications context. Mm -hmm. But of course, as you know, if you're from psychology, um, Information is just one out of several factors that eventually lead to a behavioral change. Mm -hmm. Two main effective behavioral levers, behavioral levers seem to be social norms and nudging. Uh, so if you want to change behavior, you should try to work through the social networks in such a way that people believe that other people would choose the we say the climate friendly and the climate adapted alternative, adaptation alternative, and therefore they would want to do so themselves. Mm -hmm. So how such a visible solution as putting solar panels on your roof spreads, and what we know from several studies is that it's not the case that it just randomly goes out, so it's a kind of geographically mm -hmm. well spread. It tends to be that if one 
neighbor or one guy in the street gets solar panels and suddenly it, the other houses seem to be smitten by the same things. So the use of good old peer pressure uh, seems to be the clearest factor if you want to influence people towards more transformational behaviors, whether that is um, having a local vegetable gardens or solar systems, or if you look into circular economic solutions, if your close friends are doing it, they will want to do so as well. Even in those examples, we know that the most urgent issue is to reduce our consumption of carbon and all the things that go along with that. And whether we use in, in a public space the framing of adaptation and mitigation, we also know that there are changes afoot and, and thus far with our attempts at reducing emissions are um, falling far short of what they need to do. I mean, those are opportunities, but some of those changes are going to be losses. Uh, we have here indigenous populations who are looking mm. likely at the, yeah, yeah. D with the unavoidable changes that we have to mm. make, some mm. of them very apparent around protecting yeah, coastlines, mm. but some maybe, uh, you know, that transformational adaptation, fundamental systems change that are contributing to this problem. Mm. How do we get people engaged in thinking about that without the fear, getting engaged in a way that empowers them to act, but to think about those other things beyond, um, in addition to and beyond emissions reduction? Yes. So that is, of course, the challenge that I've been trying to address. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, if you want me to put it in like in a one-liner, it is that we have to <coughs> choose approaches that are brain-friendly, that go along with how the human brain works, rather than sitting around a scientist and uh, knowing what we should do and then trying to tell politicians and tell the people, listen guys, you need to listen to me and do as I say, because that's not the way the human brain works. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> that worked, we wouldn't be in this situation. <laughs> yeah, so also in the adaptation space, public officers and activists, it e it's easy to fall into what we call the information deficit trap, which is that uh, we have the information, we are the experts, we're analyzing this, and what we need to do is to educate the public, let's get the information out there, let them tell how bad it's gonna get, and then let them tell them where, uh, and then we, after the information has come over there, then their, their deficit, their gap, their, their empty brains would have been filled up with the stuff that we know is right, and then they will agree with the experts. That's been the implicit model for how to, to create uh, informed engagement and of course psychologists and other sociologists have demonstrated that this does not work and still scientifically minded climate people typically from a natural science background go and do is using the same strategy so I like to point out that, that they are quite unscientific in their superstition that just continuing to push the right information will eventually get the public to agree with the consensus of the experts so that's not the way to do it so we need to find ways then to, to communicate this that goes along with lust centers in the brain and help people um, choose the right thing even if they are inattentive haven't thought much about the long term and, and that is why I'm speaking so much about the social networks. If I believe others are doing it, when you go to purchase stuff, uh, the, the simplest thing to get hold of, that it, which is contributing to, to lower embodied emissions, then more people will do so. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, it's not enough just to know this. We need to help. Um, if we want to engage people, uh, we need to find a more brain-friendly way of approaching both consumers and decision-makers. 
And it's easy to um, get the feeling that it's too late. Uh, we're fucked. <laughs> and the last thing. Apocalypse <laughs> fatigue. Apocalypse <laughs> fatigue. And, uh, yeah. Yes. And uh, that's why I spent the entire you know, chapter in my last book discussing this issue of hope. Yeah. So, so say a bit more about that. What, <laughs> what about hope and how so does hope. one, what role does it play and how do you cultivate it in an informed way where it's not wishful mm. thinking hope? Mm. Yes. So I've been in this space with climate change about 28 years. And of course, I share your complete frustration about how insanely slow things are happening. And uh, we're, I have a close colleague and friend, Jürgen Randers, who started this discussion with uh, the Meadows and Meadows back in 1972. So he's been at it for 50 years, and uh, mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's depressed and despaired, and he says that the world is much less sustainable now than it was when we started 50 years ago. So we've utterly failed. But my friend Perespan Stockner say you have to go on smiling, so I put a happy smile on my face, but when I'm crying within. <laughs> That's what he says. And um, yeah, I mean, um, I'm not optimistic. And um, the um, rationalists and the good scientific analysts have all the the facts on their side. This is looking bad and it's getting worse. Yeah. So how do we keep working in the face of that? And I'm full of hope, but it's not hope that is dependent on optimism in the sense that I'm predicting a very nice and easy outcome. Um, there are two types of optimists and two types of hope based on on optimism. One is the, the, the passive hope, and that is, um, oh, I'm sure they will come up with something. There, there's, suddenly there will be a breakthrough on fusion and everything will work out fine. And, or we'll fix it somehow and there we, will, we will use some geoengineering and block the sun out or whatever. So somebody will come, come up with something. Don't worry, be happy. That's what you call wishful thinking yeah. or Pollyanna hope. Uh, that's not the kind of hope I have. Um, another type of hope is the heroic hope, which is to keep fighting. And uh, we are clever and we are many and we are, everybody is uh, working and humans can when we really want and uh, to play the Canadian tune. Canadians are robust and we know how we've been out in bad weather before and uh, we know how to deal with extremes and we'll get through it. If we only, we, we will win because we, we keep, we never give up. Uh, if you put that into models, some models show it's much, yeah. we're heading towards much higher temperatures than we thought. And so when you get that kind of news, then you go like this, oh, I've been fighting for 10 years, I can't take it anymore, I have to, I'll, I'll move up to a mountain and fuck the world. So then, then that heroic optimism just cracks up and you're burnt out and you're exhausted and I know a lot of these people have been working so hard and for so many years and, uh, and in the face of, uh, of um, all the bad news that keep coming in they, they eventually gave in and been heroically at work for eight years and then giving up because it's hopeless that's so what else do, what other alternatives do we have uh, you can have pessimism of course but that's not conducive to hope. So what is the other alternative to optimism? Well, that is um, skepticism. Um, that has a long and 
sound philosophical tradition, which is respect for the unknown. We don't really know where we're going. Uh, we don't know the unknown unknowns of the climate systems, and we also have a deep ignorance on how social systems change, really, in the macro. So societies are unpredictable, the deep ocean is unpredictable, the cloud system is unpredictable. So there are many unpredictable, and technological diffusion is often unpredictable. So if you then think about another version of hope as, as skepticism, you get the same two types, one passive and one active. One passive and skeptic way is that, no, we don't know what's going to happen, but uh, when the shit hits the fan, we'll work it through somehow, and we'll model it. Uh, we'll just uh, stay put, and uh, we'll take one day at a time, and we will find a way to, to get through it, and uh, things will get bad, uh, but uh, we'll deal with that uh, bridge. We'll build the bridge when we come to that river. That's the kind of stoic hope that um, finds a kind of hope in in our capacity to to deal with stuff, deal with the shit when it really becomes um, heavy enough. And then there's the fourth type of hope, which is active and skeptic, which is my type of hope. I often call that a grounded hope, which is based on not a fantasy of an easy win soon, but a fan, but a, shall we say, a, a deep recognition of what values that make my life worth living. So I am doing this work, I'm sitting here with you now, uh, not because I believe um, Canada will succeed in its adaptation and stop the destruction of the indigenous lands, etc., which I would love if you did, but, uh, but I, I keep going and it gives me a joy to take another step and be here and talk with you and contribute whatever I can. My enthusiasm, my energy, my whatever I have to offer and some concepts and some twists on things. And maybe somebody will take something away, oh, that's fine, but I don't really care about the impact because it feels right, it's the right thing for me to do. It keeps me going and I don't get exhausted because it's grounded in who I am. So as long as I am able to walk, I'll care for the earth because it feels good gives me a sense of meaning. You've got two young people here. What message do you want to give mm. uh, um, to them or to any of us about where yeah. we're at and what we need to do? Mm. So I think life is a tough bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so keep working on regeneration. So the particularly countries such as Canada and Norway that have a huge Arctic. We know the Arctic will change, but regeneration, um, we can have healthy ecosystems that are regenerating themselves, they're becoming something else, but they're not like becoming catastrophic. And we can have forests that keep regenerating themselves and we can have wetlands. So our role as human species is to help the land regenerate itself. And to me, that is the new story, rewilding, regeneration, restoration. Um, if we can become good listeners, enter into reciprocity with the land, with the birds, with the four-legged heads, and listen to what they need. And I'm sure there is more than enough wetlands, forests, and soils to, to draw this CO2 down again and create another type of ecosystem, not the one we had, but another one that is also beautiful, and it is living and is able to regenerate itself. 
I really have deep belief in human agency, that we are able to collaborate and reciprocate with nature, regenerating nature in spite of all the changes that we see are coming. I think we easily fall prey to despair, depression and grief. All these things are necessary. If you feel them, if they come to you, let them pass through. They will ground you in yourself and finding a new energy to connect with whatever nature, whatever other beautiful human beings and cultures that are there and will be there for a long, long time. And we just, I just love to continue to contribute to this uh, unknown development. Wow, what a fascinating approach to understanding climate change communication and campaigning. Honing in on that brain-friendly climate campaign languaging. And it does definitely feel true that more information is not necessarily what's needed. What we do need is to find a way that really excites people and a language that can enchant people. It does seem that threatening people is effective, but only to a certain extent. And I really appreciated the three frames Per mentioned in terms of framing climate change communication. The first was in health terms and that climate change is a health risk. And the second being the risk languaging and the language of insurance. And then the third is opportunity framing, that climate change is a tremendous opportunity for upgrading our cities, upgrading our economies, upgrading our democracies, upgrading our communities, the ways in which we relate with one another, the ways in which we understand our place within the world. And I love the process of walking through the different kinds of hope. And to finish with the final one, the active and skeptic hope, or the grounded hope. We're invited into the wisdom of the unknown, or how I understand it is a gentle dance with uncertainty. And in this space, according to this grounded hope, it seems that the way that we stay buoyant and calibrated is by honing in on one's values and one's sense of purpose in life or the soul food that gives life meaning. And that Per sees these as our tools for navigating the vast unknown that we're all looking at together. Well, hey, thanks again for tuning into our podcast. You can expect another one in two weeks from now. I hope you gained something from this, uh, this conversation. And on behalf of the lab, we wish you well in these changing times. Life is precious.